Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation. The podcast that tells the remarkable story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African-Americans, and other outcasts invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. I'm David Armstrong, and I call this episode The Fall and Rise of Yiddish Theater, How the Yiddish Theater Influenced Broadway, Part 2. This is the second half of my conversation with acclaimed actor, writer, producer, and director Avi Hoffman. If you missed part one, you may want to catch up on that episode before listening to this one. Avi is also the founder and CEO of the Yiddishkeit Initiative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to preserving Jewish culture, which you'll hear more about later on. Last time, Avi shared with us the story of how the Yiddish theater was born in Eastern Europe in the 1880s and soon spread around the world. By the turn of the 20th century, there were dozens of theaters located on Second Avenue on the Lower East Side of New York, which had become the world capital of Yiddish theater. It was sort of like a parallel world to the Broadway theater that was emerging and developing in Times Square at that exact same time. And as we will hear, the Yiddish theater had a tremendous influence on Broadway. Way. And that's where we pick up our conversation. Here we go. And so through the 20s, 30s, 40s, and into the 50s, the Yiddish theater now began transitioning into what we now know as Broadway. All of these great Broadway composers were influenced by what they had seen in the Yiddish theater. The directors who were coming out of the Yiddish theater and now directing on Broadway. The stars who were making the transition into Broadway. And not just the stars, the regular utility actors. Not only the name celebrity roles, but all the roles were now being performed by by former Yiddish theater, former and current Yiddish theater actors. By the time you get to 1949 and Death of a Salesman, Arthur Miller, not many people know this, and I only know this because I did the research when I was performing Willie Loman in Death of a Salesman in Yiddish. What I learned was that Arthur Miller intended for Death of a Salesman to be an immigrant Jewish story. It was based on his uncle Manny, who was an immigrant from the old country, who was a salesman, and he committed suicide. He jumped out of a window on 1501 Broadway. Wow. 
And so Arthur Miller wrote Death of a Salesman to be a Jewish story. And it was Elia Kazan who said, no, 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 no. It's got to be America. Hap and Biff, not Duvid and Joshua. <laughs> it's Willie Loman, not, you know, Moshe. Even though they were in Brooklyn, even though they were a Jewish family. Joseph Bulov, who was one of the great stars of the Yiddish theater at that time, decided he wanted to do Death of a Salesman in Yiddish. Now, Bulov had done Oklahoma. Trapped. Tricked. Hoodblinked. Hambushed. Friend, what's on your mind? Why do you walk? Around and around with your hands folded behind and your chin scraped in the ground. He's the original Ali Hackett, Mr. That's right, correct. Twenty minutes ago, I am free like a breeze, free like a bird in the woodland wild, free like a gypsy, free like a child. I am unattached. I am minding my own business like I order. Ain't meaning any harm to anyone. I'm talking to a certain farmer's daughter. Then I'm looking in the muzzle of a gun. He was already starting the transition into the mainstream Broadway world, but he was still holding on to the Yiddish theater because he could make a lot of money traveling all over the world doing Yiddish theater and playing the roles that he wanted to play. So he translates Death of a Salesman into Yiddish, and he goes to Argentina, to Buenos Aires, which had an enormous Yiddish theater community, and he performs it there without permission from Arthur Miller. And it's a huge success. And he writes a letter to Arthur Miller, and he includes all the reviews. And he writes, Dear Mr. Muller, he literally misspells Miller's name, <laughs> spells it with a U. And he says, Dear Mr. Muller, you don't know me. I'm Joseph Bulloff. I'm a great Yiddish actor. And I just did your show without your permission in Argentina. And it's a huge hit. See the reviews. We sold out. And if I were you, I'd give me the rights to do it in Yiddish all over the world. Arthur Miller was notoriously not favorable to allowing people to do his work without a lot of supervision. And so he loved the idea because that's really how he imagined it. And he gave him permission. Wow. So in 1949, Bulloff does Death of a Salesman in Brooklyn, in the Yiddish Theater in Brooklyn. And then he moves it, and then it goes around the world, and eventually it was revived five years ago, I believe, in New York. I had the honor of playing the role, getting nominated for a drama desk in Yiddish. And then we did it in Toronto at the Ashkenaz Festival and sold out. It was really quite extraordinary. But I guess the point I'm trying to make is that when we talk about Broadway today and your Jason Robert Browns and your Sondheims, and again, if you look at Broadway not just as an acting medium or a writing medium, but also a producing medium, Joe Papp. Joe Papp was Yosel Papirovsky. He grew up a child of immigrants who spoke only Yiddish. He went to the Yiddish theater. He was a communist. That was the movement, the labor movements. He was all about social justice. I just did a new musical about Joe that tells his life story. 
And what's fascinating is that he took his Yiddish sensibility, social justice, equality, all people, multiculturalism. He brought that to the public theater and he created the New York Shakespeare Festival and the public theater based on those principles. Menashe Skolnik was one of the great stars of Yiddish theater. He was a Yiddish vaudevillian. For 25 years, celebrated comedian actor Menashe Skolnik has starred in the Yiddish theater. We are delighted tonight to present Menashe Skolnik again on our stage. Let's have a wonderful reception for him. He slowly started working in English. You know, usually, usually when, when I appear for such, for such nice, intelligent audience, I, 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 always, I always like to say something, although I never have what to say. At my last appearance here, I asked Ed Sullivan about what subject I should talk. So he asked me to talk about some great personality, so naturally I spoke about myself. <laughs> oh, I, I'm known in this part of the country very well. Of course, I, I must admit, I, I'm not as famous as, let's say, as, uh, as Sammy Davis Jr. Although I was Jewish before him. <laughs> All I can tell you, I have played for your fathers and for your mothers. And maybe, maybe for your grandfathers and grandmothers. And my only ambition is to play for your children. I, I don't know how long I'm going to serve the public. All I want is another 25 years, that's all. And, and after 25 years, I'd like to go into a legitimate business. He was watched by the great comedians like Henny Youngman and Rodney Dangerfield and Milton Berle and eventually influenced Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner and Woody Allen, which leads us to Paul Reiser and Gilbert Gottfried. Jerry Seinfeld. Jerry Seinfeld, thank you. And your chain from Menashe Skolnick through the comedy is extraordinary as you look at how it influences what we think of as modern stand-up comedy. So the influence of that world is truly extraordinary as you bring it forward. Now, my personal connection, which is, you know, again, it's all circumstance, and I'm very privileged. I'm a child of Holocaust survivors who decided that Yiddish was a culture that couldn't be lost. And when I was born in 1958, Yiddish was starting to see an enormous decline. Now, once again, there's a natural assimilation that happens. The, all ethnicities, all groups, the immigrants came over in the 1880s. They had a kid in America. They spoke Yiddish at home. The kid kind of knew it, but didn't understand everything. And sometimes they spoke Yiddish when they didn't want the kids to understand. You should learn English. You should be an American. Don't speak that language. Now you have grandchildren second generation, who remember their grandparents spoke those funny words and they ate that really good food. And I remember they sang that song. Yeah, I don't really remember the words, but I remember the melody, but it makes me feel good. Well, by the time you get to the third generation, they basically know nothing, but they know that they're Jewish. And so there's something called the third generation principle. That's, and this is actually a sociological principle that says every three generations of every ethnicity, the great grandchildren go back to find out what it means, which is why today in 2022, we're having this enormous global renaissance of Yiddish, Yiddish language, Yiddish culture. 
So in the 1950s, when I was born and into the 1960s, that natural assimilation had already taken hold and the third generation wasn't quite there. And so Yiddish was seeing an enormous decline. But now add to it two more horrible elements. Self-inflicted one of them and one of them not. In Europe, there were 12 million Yiddish-speaking Jews in 1930s. Yiddish theater was very popular. Well, what happened in the 1920s and 30s and into 40s, we all know, which we now know as the Holocaust, six million. Just imagine how many people in New York, 10 million people in New York. What if you went out and killed five million people? Actors, singers, dancers, directors, and everybody else. The devastation on the culture is enormous. Half the Yiddish-speaking community of Europe was murdered, including much of my family. So Yiddish, by the very nature, took an enormous blow to add insult to injury. When those Jews came to America or Israel or other places around the world, Yiddish suddenly became associated with concentration camps and victimhood. So nobody wanted to speak that language. It was like, no, 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 don't talk that language. Don't sing those songs. No, learn Hebrew. Hebrew's coming. Israel's coming. There's going to be a country for Jews. And that is now the third blow. And again, I love Israel. I lived in Israel, and I'm a great supporter of Israel. And I think it's magnificent that the Jews finally had a place to go where they could be safe, even though they were attacked on day one and continue to live under enormous tension. You know, how would you feel if, you know, you're living in Miami and Cuba decides to send a missile over to you? You know, you'd feel pretty bad. We wouldn't stand for it. In Israel, it happens almost on a daily basis. So here was this new country with a new language, a new Jew. Modern Hebrew was developed around the same time of the 1880s. But now it suddenly had a state and everybody spoke Hebrew and nobody wanted to speak Yiddish. In 1951, I have a document from the Israeli government, from the Department of Culture, the Ministry of Culture, that says no Israeli performers, actors, directors are allowed to perform in Yiddish. What was the thinking behind that? They just were ashamed of it at that point or they were embarrassed by it? Well, I think that was part of it. But I think more than that was the thought that in order to create a new Jew, they had to get away from the old Jew. So the Holocaust survivors in Israel spoke Yiddish. Yiddish theater came from America to Israel, and that was allowed. But in Israel proper, you weren't allowed to perform in Yiddish theater, which is amazing. I mean, I just find that to be a crime. As far as I'm concerned, that's criminal. And one of these days, I'll have a discussion with the prime minister of Israel and talk about it and say, hey, it's time for reparations. (laughs) But in any event, Yiddish theater saw an enormous decline. So by the time I came along, 1958, I was in one of the last enclaves of Yiddish that was still left in New York, which was the Bronx. And on Bainbridge Avenue in the Bronx, there was a little Yiddish school called Sholem Aleichem Folk School, Folk School, number 21. And we were a group of families, including Zalman Malotik, who now runs the National Yiddish Theater Folksbean in New York. The Gottliebs, the Goddessmans, the Schechters, the Fishmans, the Hoffmans, the Waletskis, many of the people in today's resurgence of Yiddish, especially in New York, are products of what was left of that little group in the Bronx. And so by the time I was four in the Yiddish school, my mother was writing little musicals for me to star in. 
When I was six, my mother took me to see Fiddler on the Roof on Broadway, which changed my life. By the time I was eight, I was performing as Teviot in Fiddler on the Roof, in English, in the community center on Hillman Avenue in the Bronx, and Zalman Molotik was my piano player. He was the music director. And then by the time I was 10, the Yiddish theater, those who were still left, and it had really deteriorated pretty substantially by then, heard about me and called me up and said, we're doing a show called Bronx Express 1968. I was 10 years old. It was based on an old Yiddish theater show called Bronx Express from the early century. And they had updated it to 1968. It was by Osip Dimov. David Licht was the director, a famous Yiddish theater director. And the stars of the Yiddish theater that were still left were in it. And I got to play the role of the young son. And what had happened to Yiddish theater at that point was it had gotten to the point where the only people who were interested anymore more were the old, old Yiddish-speaking people who wanted to see their little melodramas. And so that's what it was. It were these melodramatic theatrical socialist pieces. Bronx Express was about a guy who worked in a sweatshop and he was on the subway every day on the Bronx Express, mm -hmm. going from the Bronx down to the sweatshop. And he'd work 12 hours, 14, 15 hours a day. And then he'd schlep back on the Bronx Express back home to share his meager earnings with his poor, poor family. And one day he is on the subway and he meets an old friend from the old country who's dressed in furs and he's got diamond rings. And he says, oh, my God, look at you. You've done well in America. And he says, come with me. Come with me to Wall Street. Leave your family, those greenhorns behind. Come with me. I'll make you rich. And so my father, the character, goes off to become rich and famous on Wall Street and abandons his family. Mm -hmm. Right. Very socialist theme. Needless to say, now I am 10 years old. I become the breadwinner. I'm shining shoes on Wall Street, and I end up shining my father's shoes. <laughs> and I look up and I say, Tate, Tate, don't you recognize me? This is me, your son, Yosaleoi. Tate, please, father, come home. Come back to your family, right? All in Yiddish. And I'm 10. And he, of course, has a change of heart. He goes back home. And then he wakes up and the whole thing was a dream. <laughs> that show was my first professional Yiddish theater production as a professional actor. And I got paid 100 bucks or whatever it was. I don't even remember. $400, I think, for the whole run. But the New York Times reviewed the show and said, Avremel, my name was Avremel at the time, <laughs> Avremel Hoffman shows a sense of humor, which was kind of ironic since most of the time I just cried. This was what was left of the Yiddish theater by the 1960s. But how fortunate you were to have it passed on to you in this yes. way, to have this direct contact with all these amazing people who had had direct contact going back to Boris Tomaszewski. That is correct. And I got to meet some of those who were left over. And then I left. I left for Israel. I spent nine years in Israel. Nobody was interested in Yiddish. There was no Yiddish theater. I did Hebrew theater. I did English theater. I made movies. I did television. I became an actor. And then I came back to the States for college and decided to pursue my career again. And when the Yiddish theater, whoever was left, and there was very little left at the time, Ben Bonus and his wife, Nina Byrne, were still the great stars that were left over. They've heard I was back. 
And they called me up and said, listen, we want you to come and play this role. And I told you the story earlier. I'm supposed to play the lead role, the young love interest. And I get there and he says, look, you're going to play the 80-year-old bookseller. <laughs> and that was my reintroduction into professional Yiddish theater in New York in 1981. But then Yiddish theater takes a very interesting turn. Because by 1982, 83, there were a lot of young people like myself who were still kind of leftovers, who grew up speaking Yiddish, children of survivors, a few grandchildren of survivors who still had access to the language. And we were asked, actually Zalman Malotik and his cousin Moshe Rosenfeld were asked to put together a tribute for the 75th anniversary of the Yiddish newspaper, The Forward. And they said, wow, we're going to get some of these young actors together and we're going to put together like a program. And they called it the Golden Land. And they took all this old Yiddish theater music and Yiddish theater sketches, but they approached it from a 1980s modern young sensibility. A foggy night, a bitter night that cuts you to the bone. There's a little ragamuffin standing all alone He holds a basket in his hand Within his eyes an old, old man Although this little boy is hardly grown I can't go on, he said to me I'm hungry and I'm wet Won't you try to help me out and buy my cigarettes? Please don't laugh and run away I'm out here on the streets all day I'm tired and I haven't eaten yet Cigarettes and matches by the dozen No one sells for less, I swear it I'm so hungry I can't bear it Anything you offer, I'll agree Oh, won't you buy my matches for a penny? I try and try, but no one's buying any. He looked as if his heart was breaking, reaching out his hand was shaking. Then he turned and walked away from me. And we went to the Stevensville Hotel in the Catskills, and we performed it for the 75th anniversary of the forward. And we must have gotten a 10-minute standing ovation at the end. People literally could not get over young people doing Yiddish, but in a new way. And I call that the first modern revolution in the Yiddish theater, because basically that led to a production called The Golden Land which ended up becoming a massive off-Broadway production that ran for four and a half years all over the country, including Lincoln Center, where we performed for Ronald Reagan in Washington. Not Lincoln Center, I'm sorry, Kennedy Center in Washington. It was an extraordinary phenomenon because suddenly all the old Yiddish speakers who were still around and their children wanted to see a show that was different. Yiddish theater wasn't melodrama. We'd laughed at the melodrama. We had scenes of melodrama where we would laugh at it. You know, the old scene of Jacob P. Adler playing King Lear. There was a King Lear scene and he's upset and he's angry and his daughters have abandoned him and he's thirsty and I can't even get a glass of water in my own house. And from the audience and on stage in our production, the old Yiddish speaking lady shouts out, Mr. Adler, Mr. Adler, come to my house. I'll give you a glass. 
less water in our a nice chicken soup. You know, and this was like we were commenting. Making fun of it in a certain way, in a loving and way. And loving it. So that became a revolution. Don't go away. Broadway Nation will be back right after this quick break. Hi, this is David Armstrong, and it's my great pleasure to welcome Factor as a sponsor to Broadway Nation this week. This spring, you can eat stress-free with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready-to-eat in just two minutes. You can choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or my personal choice, Vegan and Veggie. You can also discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages that'll help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. If you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. These are no-fuss, no-muss meals, and Factor meals eliminate the hassle of prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. You simply heat and savor the good stuff. And you can tailor it all to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. And you can pause or reschedule the deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Factor is your solution for fast, premium meals without the need for cooking. And we're celebrating Earth Day all month long at Factor, so look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for the lowest carbon footprint meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com BN50 and use code BN50 to get 50% off your first box and 20% off your next box. That's code BN50, as in Broadway Nation, BN50. 50 at factormeals.com slash bn50 to get 50% off your first box and 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Do it now. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
And I saw that show on Broadway. Am I correct? Well, it actually wasn't on Broadway. It was off Broadway at the Second Avenue Theater, which was Maury Schwartz's old Yiddish art theater on 11th Street, Second Avenue. I know I saw the show. So yes. Yeah. Then there was a son of the Golden Land called Those Were the Days. And I saw which that ended show as well. Up on Broadway, and Eleanor Risa directed and starred Bruce Adler. Hey, hoodle, 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 was herzach mitten strudel, es ist geschmackige Beseelin. Ich darf kein Fleisch, kein Zimmis, weil alles ist mir nimmis. Hey, hoodle, hoodle, gib dem Strudel and she got nominated for a Tony for Best Directing. And Brucey was nominated for a Tony for Actor. You know, it's amazing. And so Yiddish theater in the 1980s started to work its way back into the main street. Now, 1985-86, Joe Papp has now embraced his Yiddish self, and he's looking for a Yiddish outlet, and he meets my mother. And my mother speaks fluent Yiddish. She interviews him for the foreword. He falls in love, and thus is born the Joseph Papp Yiddish Theater. And so by the time 1986, 87, 88, we were developing different pieces under the auspices of the public theater. In 1989, we come up with a piece that I think of as the second modern revolution of Yiddish theater called Songs of Paradise. And this was a totally original, new Saturday Night Live meets the Book of Genesis. And it was just all contemporary young me, Eleanor Risa, Adrian Cooper, David Kenner, Rosalie Jarrett, all in our 30s, which was young for Yiddish theater. And suddenly we're doing a totally new approach to Yiddish theater. Joe Papp comes to see our opening performance at the Riverdale Y in the Bronx and falls in love and says, I'm opening this at the public theater next month. And a month later, January 19th, 1989, we open a modern Yiddish theater musical comedy at the Public Theater. And it runs for eight months, sells out. Then we move to the Astor Place Theater, and then it travels all over the world. So by the 1990s, we start to see a rebirth of Yiddish theater. Now the Folksbina, under the guidance of Zalman Malotic and Eleanor Risa, starts doing more modern interpretations of old Yiddish theater. And now you have these new companies, the new Yiddish rep, and all these individual performers that are starting to do different ways of presenting modern approaches to Yiddish theater. So new Yiddish rep does Waiting for Godot in Yiddish. New Yiddish rep does Death of a Salesman in Yiddish. And so so all these different companies and actors, and you've got modern young people who fall in love with Yiddish. Now, keep in mind, at the same time, you've got this reemergence of klezmer music mm -hmm. becoming a thing and becoming popular and winning Grammy Awards for world music.
use it. And so there's this fascinating transition into the renaissance of Yiddish language and theater through the 1990s and into the 2000s. And now here we are in 2022. I'm talking about producing a film version of Death of a Salesman in Yiddish. Wow. We're having serious discussions of actually producing a full-length feature film of Death of a Salesman in Yiddish. Netflix is showing shows like Shtisel in Yiddish and in Hebrew, and one after the other. Yiddish theater, of course, bringing us up to date. Fiddler on the Roof, Full Circle, comes back in Yiddish to New York and becomes a multi-year hit sensation. A fiddler Offenbach, Meshuggah, name. Over by uns in an Atefke is jeder Einer, I mean fiddler Offenbach. Was will euch kratzen, a porschetten, harzigen Niggen, und doch nicht sprechen dem Kopf. Und es ist nicht so leicht. Sold out, you can't get a ticket because everybody wants to hear the original version of Fiddler on the Roof, even though it was written in English. <laughs> but the stories themselves were written in Yiddish originally. The stories themselves were written in Yiddish, and it's a Yiddish sensibility, and it's a Yiddish language experience. <laughs> And all the creators of Fiddler on the Roof were those children of immigrants that you were talking about a few minutes ago. Some of them were the second generation, but some of them were the third generation looking back at their grandparents and wanting to reinvestigate that. And I would bet that all of them went to see Yiddish theater when they were kids. Yeah. And so we've gone full circle. Yiddish theater, the foundation of modern culture. Fantastic. Before I let you go, tell us just a few of the most famous Yiddish musicals. You talked about The Sorceress. What are the other most popular, most foundational Yiddish musicals and songs from those shows? You know, I wish I were more of an expert on what you're asking, but, you know, Mamale comes to mind. Mamale was a Molly Pecan classic. And Molly, who became one of the greatest stars of the Yiddish theater, and I had the privilege of meeting her when I did The Golden Lamb. She came to see The Golden Lamb. She was singing some of the greatest Yiddish theater songs, like Abigezint, Abyssal Freyd, Abyssal Lachen. Abigezint, Kemen, Glick, Lachsein. As long as you're healthy, you can be happy. Schnäpsel 
So, you know, if I have to look back at the classic Yiddish musicals, I would go to the Molly Pecan shows, some of the Boris Tomaszewski shows. But really, where I love Yiddish theater more were the adaptations of the great classics, Mm -hmm. the Yiddish King Lear. Those Mm -hmm. Chekhov adaptations, to me, were the influence for Arthur Miller and all of the writers of that period who were starting to write these new American gritty stories. And so many of them, again, these great Jewish writers, were influenced by those socialist, communist, dirty, theatrical Yiddish theater productions that they were seeing when they were young. That Yiddish sensibility, I believe, really influenced what became the American theater of the 50s, 60s, and eventually Joe Papp in the 70s and 80s. And today, I don't separate Hamilton, believe it or not, from what I'm talking about. Or Tony Kushner, certainly influenced by Definitely Tony Kushner. Obviously the Jews, but I'm even talking about the non-Jews. Absolutely. You know, when you think of Hamilton, he was influenced by Fiddler on the Roof. Heavily. And he talks about it heavily. And so as you look at the modern American and European and Israeli creative forces, you can't separate what they grew up on, which was the heavily Jewish influence of Broadway and off-Broadway of the 1940s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. As Mr. Sondheim said, children will listen. Children will listen. And Sondheim, of course, himself was influenced by Bernstein. All of them are a chain. This is an ongoing chain of now 140 years, which really is a chain that goes back to the 1600s and the Bordelzinge and a thousand years of Yiddish and 5,000 years of Jewish cultural contribution to the world the mainstream world. I think that's a perfect way to end because that's one of the main threads of this podcast is that connection over time between all the creators of this. I have one more question, though. If we did a Yiddish translation of The Sound of Music, would we call it klezmer? (laughs) Wow, what a funny, what a funny premise. You know, that's, I I mean, I I appreciate the joke of it. And yes, maybe, you know, klezmer, klezmer. Yeah, let's go. Let's do it. I'm ready. You're on. As a matter of fact, I think somewhere in my archive, there was a project that my mom worked on with Joe Papp called Yiddish Off-Broadway. And basically what they did was take all these Broadway musicals and translate them into Yiddish and do excerpts from Mm -hmm. all the different, you know, Sweet Charity in Yiddish. Sound of Music in Yiddish. And so somewhere in my archive, I probably already have a translation, which I could probably fill out. But you know what? Here's where it gets really interesting. So my mom and I were working on this for the last couple of years, and I think we're almost ready to move forward. We're writing a phantasmagorical Yiddish hip-hop fantasy called Schickelgrube and Jugashvili. What does that mean? Ah, Schickelgrube was the original name of Adolf Hitler. Jugashvili was the real name of Joseph Stalin. Hmm. So what were to happen if Joseph Stalin and Adolf Hitler were to meet in purgatory and are asked by Satan to create a new musical for the 22nd century? 
Wow. It's hip-hop, it's rap, it's Yiddish, and it's English, and it's Yinglish, and it's all these different things. And I'm fascinated how Yiddish is now evolving. Mm -hmm. Because you've got a lot of non-Jews, like Kareid O'Brien and Shane Baker, who have learned Yiddish just as a secondary language, fallen in love, and are now some of the most important creative forces in the Yiddish world of today. It's an amazing language because, you know, I did that show with Theo Bakel and Bruce Adler and Zolman was the musical director. And I was there as the sort of non-Yiddish policeman to say, we need to do a little more translation here. And I was directing it and just helping to make sure it was accessible to everybody. Right. But what a language to just be captivated by, even when I couldn't understand it. It's captivating just the sound of it. And let me just say that when we did Death of a Salesman in New York, and it was very successful, I mean, people were blown away, just really totally blown away. Somebody came up to me and he said, I get it now. He said, Yiddish theater is the new opera. People mm -hmm. went to opera. They didn't understand the language. They mm -hmm. just went to the experience and they could read the subtitles. Yiddish theater, in his opinion, this was like a major producer. As far as he was concerned, Yiddish theater is the 21st century opera. And I found that fascinating because it appeals to everybody. You don't have to be Jewish to appreciate Death of a Salesman or Fiddler on the Roof, obviously, which has been one of the most successful shows in the history of ever all over the world. So once again, mainstream culture has been influenced enormously by Yiddish theater and the Yiddish language. And I'm very privileged to have been born at the exact right time, the exact right place, to be able to be one of the forces that are able to bring this back to the world. And that's what our organization does, whyilovejewish.org. Plug some of those videos that people could go and watch. We have a website called Why I Love Jewish. Dot org. It's a nonprofit organization. I founded six years ago now. It's amazing to me that it's six years. And our entire raison d'etre is to illuminate this lost connection to the world of Jewish Yiddish culture, but not only Yiddish, because again, Yiddish became Yinglish. So six years ago, my mother and I, my mother was professor of Yiddish language and culture at Columbia University for wow. 25 years. She was a journalist at the forward newspaper in Yiddish for 35 years. It was kind of like the Yiddish version of Art Buckwald. She had a weekly column where she would write whatever she wanted. Very often it was funny. Sometimes it wasn't. She wrote reviews of theater, Broadway, off-Broadway, and Yiddish theater, and an award-winning playwright and author. She and I started working together when I was a child in Yiddish theater. So we created this organization, which is now branded as Why I Love Jewish. Org. And on that website, you can find over a hundred broadcast performances that we've done since COVID, because COVID changed everything. We were a live performance producing entity. We were doing festivals and concerts all over the country, in Florida, in Toronto, in Israel. We produced a big Yiddish fest in New York in December of 2019, literally weeks before. And once COVID hit, we lost all of our live performances. So we had to figure out how to adapt. And we went to an all-virtual existence. So the first thing we did, which really changed my world, we were scheduled to do a concert tour of something we called Yiddish Tangos, which was basically these original songs from the early 20th century into the 30s and 40s when tango music became very popular in America. 
So the Jewish composers, needless to say, started to write tangos in Yiddish. And Aaron Kula, who was a professor at FAU, a musicologist, found all these songs. And together we created this concert where we talk about the history as well as the actual singing of the songs. And some of them are very funny and some of them are just very beautiful. And it's an amazing phenomenon. In any event, our tour got canceled. We literally in one day lost $100,000 in future income. And we were stunned. I said to Aaron, listen, why don't you come to my living room and bring the musicians. We'll socially distance. We'll clean everything really well. And we'll do the concert in my living room. I'll get my computer. We'll go on Facebook Live and we'll just do the concert. He's like, okay. And, you know, and I paid the musicians a couple of hundred bucks to just do something because we didn't know what to do. Well, 120,000 people watched that concert. Wow. And suddenly we realized we had a worldwide audience. So from that moment till today, we have over 100 programs ranging from lectures and panel discussions and educational materials, Yiddish classes, all the way to Grammy Award-winning musicians like Frank London, Eleanor Risa, Tony Award-winning Rebecca Teichmann talking about how Indecent came into being. Out of Yiddish theater, the God of Vengeance, Sholem Ash, some of the great writers of the time, all whom wrote for Yiddish theater. Thank you, Avi Hoffman, for joining us today on Broadway Nation. It's been such a pleasure to speak with you. It's my honor, and I look forward to doing it again. The best-known Yiddish theater song is, without a doubt, this one, by Mir Bistushane. Wenn die sollt sein schwarz wie a tute, wenn die hos eugen wie bei a kute, und wenn die hinkt se bisslich, hast hilt se ne fieslich, so geh du sad mich nicht. Und wenn die hast a narischen Schmechel, und wenn die hast wei soße Sechel, wenn die bist wild wann in die Jane, bist a viele Galiziane, so geh du sad mich nicht. It's a song that is known around the world. However, very few of its fans are aware of its birth on the Yiddish stage or even of its Jewish origin, since in its most famous version, the words of the title are usually assumed to be some kind of Americanized German. The music was composed by Sheldon Secunda, who was one of the most prolific and successful composers of Yiddish musicals, and the original Yiddish lyrics were by Jacob Jacobs, who was one of Second Avenue's most prominent actors, singers, and comedians. By Mir Bistushane, which translates to To Me You Are Beautiful, was written for the 1932 musical comedy Mechenleben Normalos Niet, which translates to One Could Really Live If They Would Only Let You. But the official English subtitle was I Would If I Could. The show had a book by Abraham Blum, and the song was introduced on stage by the beloved Aaron Lebedoff, who was often called the Yiddish Al Jolson. He played the leading character of Jake, a shoe factory worker who was in love with the owner's daughter, but is then fired by her father because of his union organizing activity. He sings this song to her to demonstrate his commitment to making their relationship work in spite of the obstacles that stand in their way. Wow. 
And the story ends with a wedding, of course. The show and the song were an instant hit, and it was published and sold extremely well within the world of Yiddish language sheet music. A few years later, lyricist Sammy Khan wrote an English adaptation of the Yiddish lyrics that was recorded by an up-and-coming group called the Andrew Sisters. Their record became one of the best-selling records of the era, and the song catapulted the Andrew Sisters to the top levels of stardom. Of all the boys I've known and I've known some, until I first met you I was lonesome. And when you came inside, dear, my heart grew light and this old world seemed new to me. Broadway Nation is written and produced by me, David Armstrong. If you love this podcast and want to delve even deeper into the world of Broadway musicals, I invite you to become a member of the Broadway Nation Backstage Pass Club. For as little as $7 a month, members will receive exclusive access to never-before-heard, unedited versions of every Season 2 interview and many from Season 1 as well. I often record at least twice as much conversation as ends up in the public episodes, and this includes additional in-depth conversations with my frequent co-host, Albert Evans. You will also have the opportunity to ask us any questions about Broadway musicals that you would like to hear answered and to propose topics and subject matter that you would like me to cover, all of which I will incorporate into a special series of Ask Me Anything About Broadway episodes. Last, but certainly not least, you will receive special on-air shout-outs and acknowledgement of your vital support for this podcast. To join, just click the link included in the show notes for this episode on our website at www.broadway-nation.com. That's broadway-nation.com. Special thanks to KVSH 101.9, the voice of beautiful Vashon Island, Washington, and to the entire team at the Broadway Podcast Network. I could say Bella, Bella, even say each language only helps me tell you how grand you are. I've tried to explain by me a vista shame, so kiss me. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.